Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 62, and we're going to interrupt our regularly scheduled program to talk about the winter that seems to have affected everybody except those of you in Southern Florida. We're also going to talk about catalytic converters, what they are, how they work, and why people want to steal them from you. We'll have a product review of the Safety Puck 9-in-1 and a tale from the road involving birds getting into my Land Rover. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for being here. I hope you're doing well. This has been quite the week for most of us in the U.S. and Canada and in many places we're listening as we've had our first major winter storm in a very long time in many parts of the country. Those of you in Texas, I know it's hard, and I promise I'm not going to make fun of you in any way because I know that you guys simply are not prepared to deal with these temperatures and the snow, and I have friends in the gas industry who are telling me about how the power is a vicious circle. I am truly sorry for those of you down there. However, those of you who are in vans are actually better off than those of you in houses right now. So good for you. You made the right choice when you decided to get a van. That said, let's talk about winter in vans. Now, I know I've had a couple of episodes where I've talked about things like winterizing the van, but let's talk about if you suddenly find yourself in wintry conditions in your van. What should you do? First thing, as they say about just about everything in life, don't panic. Doesn't matter if you've never driven in the snow before, doesn't matter if you have no insulation, don't panic. It's just snow. People drive in it all the time. There are some things to do to make yourself safer, but it isn't going to kill you unless you do something that is unwise. Now, I don't care if you've got four-wheel drive, two-wheel drive, all-wheel drive, whatever. There's one thing about snow and ice that you absolutely have to keep in mind at all times, and that is you can't stop. Never mind about going. The important part about driving in the snow is realizing that you can't stop. Everybody focuses on snow tires and all-terrain tires and, oh, I got these big gnarly tires and I can go through anything. That's all fine and good. But the fact of the matter is, is you can't stop. And all of the accidents and a lot of the getting stuck that people do in the winter comes because they forget that fact. Every single time we get a snowstorm like this, I'll head out and I will see somebody in their four-wheel drive vehicle bombing down the highway with a big smile on their face like, I got a four-wheel drive vehicle. I don't have to worry about this snow. Yes, you do. Because it's not the going that's the problem. It's the stopping. So if you don't take anything else away from this episode, please remember that. Knowing that you can't stop informs the rest of your driving. You drive slower. You drive with a plan. You are always attentive. And it's probably a good idea to turn the radio off. You stay in your lane as much as you can. I know with this storm it was difficult to find your lane. You leave your turn signal on for extra time to let people know where you're going to go so they can react. You leave more space between you and the car in front of you. A lot more. Of course, that can be a problem because some of these yahoos who don't know how to drive in the snow will sneak right in that space and then you're in a situation where you have to slam on your brakes, which isn't going to do anything. Now, if you are in a situation where you step on your brakes and you start sliding, if you are in a newer vehicle, that is a vehicle after about, no, I would say 1990, a a vehicle that has anti-lock brakes, ABS, what you want to do is hold on the brake pedal and don't pump it, 
Don't take your foot off, hold on the brake pedal, and steer. The anti-lock braking system is working to make it so that your vehicle stays under control and will stop in the minimum distance possible. If you have an older vehicle, you can follow the old advice, which was to pump your brakes. Because what happens is your wheels will lock up. If there is no traction, if there's no traction between the road and your tire and you slam on the brakes, your wheels will lock up. And then they become skis and they're not going to help you slow down at all. What pumping the brakes does is actually the same thing that ABS does. Just ABS does it a lot more efficiently. It pulses the brakes so that your wheels get a little bit of grip and then let go, a little bit of grip and then let go. So they never get into that state where they're sliding and turning into skis. But remember to steer. There's nothing you can do to slow that vehicle down more. So remember to steer. That is your job. Now there's another trick that if you're not familiar with this is a huge one. Now, I know folks in Illinois typically aren't familiar with this because there's no hills in Illinois. This is also a way to go slowly down hills, and that is to downshift. So if you have an automatic transmission, or if you have a manual transmission, you'll notice that there's more than one gear. There's drive, which most of us use most of the time, and then you've got two, three, one, or some combination thereof. Well, those lower gears have a purpose, and one of those purposes is to help you slow down without stepping on the brakes. Now, why would you want to do that? Well, just for the reason I stated, if you want to slow down in slippery conditions, you can downshift from, say, drive to three, and the engine will slow your wheels down, but it won't ever stop them. You won't get into that state where your wheels are skidding and have turned into skis. It's a very good skill to learn how to downshift to slow yourself down. It's also helpful if you're on the highway and cars are a little bit close together. You can slow down by downshifting, and that won't put on your brake lights, which can cause somebody to panic behind you. Now, keep in mind, you are going to slow down, and that person might be getting closer, so you do have to let them know if they're in danger of hitting you. But if you're in a situation where you want to just slow down a little bit, you can go ahead and downshift. Or, in some cars, such as my NV200, there's an overdrive button. If you turn off overdrive, it has the same effect as downshifting, and it's a real easy way to kind of slow the vehicle down without stepping on the brakes. So that's an option you have too. If you have paddle shifters, you can use those, whatever. You figure out how your car works. Just know that that's what downshifting is for. It's to slow your vehicle down using the engine rather than the brakes. And of course, this works on long hills too. If you're driving through Cumberland, Maryland and going over that huge hill, you do not want to ride the brakes all the way down, especially in slippery conditions. Make sure you learn how to downshift. Now, where can you learn how to do things like this? Well, I say do what I did. Go find an empty parking lot, and there should be plenty of them around with all the malls and Sears and Kmarts going out of business. Make sure it's got some snow on it, and then do all the stupid things. Drive fast, slam on the brakes, do donuts, shift, learn how your car works under all those slippery conditions. You get a feel for these things, and you're going to be much less likely to get stuck. Okay, let's say you didn't follow my advice, or something bad happens. I mean, the most perfect drivers in the world get into trouble, and you find yourself stuck. All right, let's say you're just simple stuck. That is that your wheels don't have any traction, and they're spinning, and you can't move. First thing to know is that often rocking your vehicle will get you out of a rut. Like let's say your wheels are in a rut. You want to rock the vehicle. That is, you put it in drive, 
go forward as far as it will go, and then very quickly put it in reverse and go back as far as it'll go, and then drive and keep rocking like that. What you're going to do is build up momentum, and that momentum doesn't care if you're in a rut or not. It's going to push your van like an invisible hand, and boom, out you go. Now, it is a little hard on the transmission. You want to be gentle doing this, but it is a time-honored way to get yourself unstuck, and I have actually done it many, many times. The one thing you don't want to do is spin your wheels. If you step on the gas and you look and your speedometer is up to 40 miles an hour, but you're not moving, you're doing no good things for your van. You're wearing out your tires. You are possibly making some internal parts hotter than they should be. And you're also digging a deeper hole, which is the last thing you want. So that is not a solution. So then what you can try to do is get increased traction. Kitty litter is great for this. In fact, if you have a sock full of kitty litter, it will also help with your condensation. So this is, a you know, everything in your van is supposed to do two things. Kitty litter can do two things. Keep a sock or two filled with kitty litter on your dashboard and then... When you get stuck, if you get stuck, spread the kitty litter in front of your drive tires. Now, if you're rear-wheel drive, that means the rear wheels. If you're front-wheel drive, that means the front wheels. And maybe that will give you enough traction to get going. But you want to go very gently. Just get the wheels to turn slightly so that they grip and then go out very gently. And then once you're out, keep going. Don't slow down. Don't stop until you're in a place where you know you're good to drive. A lot of people will get stuck and then start to move out a little bit and then they're like, yay, and then they stop and then they're stuck again. You don't want that. Other ways to get traction if you don't have kitty litter is uh, you can try to use your floor mats. Your floor mats will generally have little nubbies on the bottom that add traction. You want to turn them upside down so that the nubbies are on the tire part. That usually works better. You can try it both ways. And if you're lucky that will grab on and let you go forward. A lot of the times what I've seen is that the wheels just spit them out the back and it doesn't help all that much, but it's worth giving it a try. If you're in a situation where you're going to be in the snow a lot, like you like to go winter camping or skiing or something like that, get yourself a traction board. Actually, get two. These are commercially made plastic boards. They're like, they look like small sleds, actually, and they can get use out of all kinds of things. They're, even if you're high-centered, which we'll talk about in a bit, they are well worth having. They cost about 200 bucks, but, and that may seem like a lot, but that isn't that much when you consider your only other option is to get towed and wait for hours. So that's a good thing to do. Now, if you're in a lucky situation where you have somebody with you who can help push, that can help a lot. But you want to push in conjunction with the rocking motion. And when people push, make sure they're pushing on something solid. A lot of people get their taillights broken or get big dents in the back door when people push. And be careful, it's a little bit dangerous. They can slip. So whenever anybody is going to help you push, make sure you have your windows rolled down so you can hear them yell if need be. Or you can even open the back door of the van if that'll help. But be careful of that. And then there's towing. If you happen to be driving with another vehicle and they have a tow strap, yeah, they can tow you out. And hopefully they know how to do it. It's a little bit tricky. There's a technique for towing. I should probably cover that in another episode. But make sure they know what they're doing. Don't just, like, drive real fast and yank the car. That's a bad thing. Or you can hire a tow truck and let them do it. But that's going to cost you money, obviously. And on nights where it has been like it has been... Tow trucks aren't coming. They're going to be busy. Now, there's a type of being stuck 
that is very difficult to deal with, and that's when you're high-centered. Now, we usually talk about being high-centered when we're off-roading in the desert, but in this case, we can talk about being high-centered in the snow, because that's a real easy situation to get into. If the snow is deeper than your ground clearance, that means the bottom of your car is actually dragging in the snow. And if that snow gets deeper, it can actually push your van up so much that the wheels don't make contact with the ground anymore. And then you're in trouble. At that point, you have to dig. Or, or wait for the snow to melt. You can have that option too. Yes, somebody can tow you out if they have a really good towing rig, but you're not going to be able to push yourself out of that and you're not going to be able to rock yourself out of it. The only thing you can do is dig your way home. Now, because of that, I recommend everyone have a shovel in their van at all times. I have an e-tool in mine. That's an entrenching tool. It's one of those military-style folding shovels. It'll take a while to dig out, but that kind of a shovel will dig through ice or mud or snow, and it's very versatile. You can make it into exactly the shape you want, so I recommend those. They're not very expensive. I'll have a link in the show notes if you don't know what I'm talking about with the e-tool. But if you don't have a shovel, you still have to dig. You can dig with a hubcap. You can dig with a cutting board. You can dig with a bowl. There's all kinds of things you can dig with. Remember, you are stuck. You are in a bad situation. You can risk breaking something to help get you out of there. If you're going to break a hubcap or a wheel cover, fine, break it. If it gets you out of there, it's worth it. Now, let's say you're stuck and you can't get out. Well, congratulations! You are in the best possible vehicle to be stuck in. You're home. You've got heat, you've got water, you've got a bed, you've got food... You've just found your camping spot for the night. I recommend you make the best of it. Have fun. It is what it is. You're not going to be able to do much about it until help comes or whatever. <laughs> Obviously, you've got to figure that part out. There are a few things to worry about in the winter that you may not have thought of, especially if you're, say, from Texas and you're, you didn't grow up in this kind of weather and this is all new to you. This is very, very important. Make sure that your tailpipe is completely clear. Dig a big hole around the tailpipe because if that gets blocked up even a little bit, the gases can go back under your van and then into your van and you can die. Remember, carbon monoxide is the gas that kills you without waking you up. It is bad news and it can get in your van in ways that you won't even know. It has no smell. So you want to make sure you dig a you want to make sure you dig a big hole around your exhaust and make sure that the exhaust goes outside away from your van. Make sure you can actually see the exhaust leaving your van and going into the air at large. The same is true if you have a diesel heater. These Chinese diesel heaters, Eberspatchers, whatever kind of diesel heater you have, they have two pipes outside the van in most typical installations. One is the exhaust and the other is the air intake. Make sure both of those are completely clear. And that might not be easy if you're stuck in the snow, depending on how you installed it. If those pipes are in the middle of the van and you're high-centered in snow, you might not be able to use your diesel heater safely. While those gases typically won't get into your van if you've properly installed it, the diesel heater simply won't work unless it can get clean air in and let the exhaust out. And that exhaust can sneak into the van through, say, your slam vents or a loose door seal or something like that. So make sure, just like with the other exhaust, the diesel heater exhaust is going out into the air at large. And the last thing I'm going to mention, and I, this, I just noticed this myself, 
which is that if you have a white cargo van like I do with no windows, they're really hard to see in the snow. I was just out in the woods with mine yesterday, and it just disappeared. It was like the perfect camouflage for snow. Imagine that. So make sure that if you get stuck on a roadway that you maintain visibility. Put something out there that isn't white that people can see so they know that your van is there. And I'm going to do a product review of something that actually might help with that. Winter is a wonderful thing. I love it. It can get in my way sometimes, but so can summer heat or the fall. Actually, I can't think of any way the fall can do it, but let's pretend it could. Try to have some fun, don't panic, and learn a few tricks to help you get through it. Tech Talk. I don't want to talk about this because it just angers me. But we must. There is a part in your vehicle called a catalytic converter. It's not a Cadillac converter. It's not a catalytic converter. It is a catalytic converter because it is a catalyst. A catalyst is something that helps a chemical reaction without actually changing itself. In this case, that chemical reaction is to turn your exhaust gases into something much safer for the environment. And inside your catalytic converter are several precious metals, such as platinum, which are very expensive. Platinum is worth more than gold. And because of this, you have a little treasure chest under your van. And people want to steal it. Yep, if you live in a city, especially like Chicago, you will hear of people's catalytic converters getting stolen all the time because that metal is worth hundreds of dollars in some cases. So people will come in the middle of the night with their battery-powered saws and cut that thing off in a minute and make a couple hundred bucks selling it. Meanwhile, when you start your van in the morning, it's going to sound like a tractor and you've got a $2,000 bill ahead of you as you replace that thing, which again, could be stolen the next day. I have several friends who have had theirs stolen multiple times. And if you want to find the catalytic converter in your vehicle, it's pretty easy. If you follow the pipes back from the manifold of the engine, it's the first kind of big metal muffler-looking thing. That's your catalytic converter. It's usually in the middle towards the front of the vehicle. Don't confuse it with the muffler that tends to be towards the back. So how can you stop people from stealing this thing? Well, it's not easy. Here's the deal. I mentioned before that several people I know have had their stolen multiple times. There's a reason for that. Thieves target vehicles that are higher off the ground. So they love Jeeps, they love SUVs, and sadly, they love a lot of vans. The only thing you can really do is prevent them from wanting to climb under your van. So hey, if you park over a puddle, that can help. Or if you can park in a place where you're in, your wheels are in ruts, that can make it more difficult for them too. Now they do sell cages and there is talk of welding the catalytic converter to your frame, but those cost hundreds of dollars and they don't really help because these guys have these electric sawzalls that can cut through that stuff. So once they get under there and start cutting, if they realize there's a cage or some wires in the way, they're just going to cut them too. I don't have a good solution for you. Make sure you have insurance that covers it. That's a very good thing. And don't park in places where people will feel safe working on your vehicle in the middle of the night. One thing you can do, though, is if you have an alarm system in your car, make sure it's the kind that works on vibration. Some alarm systems only work if a door's open or something. If you can add a vibration sensor to your alarm, and this is something to research probably when you're buying the vehicle, 
that can help because the vibration from cutting into the catalytic converter will set off the alarm and that hopefully would scare them away and then you would just have a little repair rather than a big one that's the phenomenon that's why these things are getting stolen is because they're an easy way to make 200 or 300 dollars and i think the only way we're really going to stop this problem is to somehow remove the financial incentive and i think that's going to require legislation that's the only thing i've got product review so i had a duluth trading company gift certificate as a gift from my in-laws. I am very appreciative. I really like Duluth Trading Company. They're, they're kind of expensive, but their stuff is really good. But I saw this thing I decided to pick up because I didn't have anything like it in my van. And it is called the Safety Puck 9-in-1 by safetybright.com. It's this orange puck-shaped thing that has LED lights in it. And it's basically a road flare, but it's optimized in many ways that makes it much better than a road flare. First, you can see this thing from way out, and it has nine different modes. It has nine different ways of flashing. It'll do a rotation like a siren. It'll even blink Morse code. You can have it do whatever you want. It'll also act like a flashlight, but you have to know that the lights are red. However, red flashlights are really useful if you're going to do stargazing or something like that, so that's kind of cool. It is shaped like a big hockey puck, but it has a magnet on it. The magnet is recessed a little bit, so the magnet doesn't actually come in contact with the surface of your vehicle. That's good because you don't have to worry about scratching your vehicle. And you can stick it on anywhere. You can stick it on the hood or on the roof or on the side. I think that's really cool. It's also super tough. You could just throw it in the middle of the road, and if something drives over it, it's fine. In fact, I think it could actually be used as a traction device. I think if you were very careful in how you placed it, it could actually help you get unstuck. The batteries last between 5 and 100 hours according to how long it's on. So in flashlight mode, you're going to get 5 hours. In the single blink mode, you're going to get 100 hours. And you can replace the batteries, but they're CR123A lithium batteries. These are specialty batteries. They're kind of expensive. But the reason you want them in there is because if you don't use this thing, the batteries will last for 10 years. Overall, I have to say I'm pretty impressed with this thing, but I do have to mention that at the Duluth Trading Company, these are $30. And there are similar things on Amazon that are much, much cheaper. Now, I haven't seen those and I haven't tried them. They may not be as good quality as this. But then again, you may not need as good quality of this because this is an emergency item. You might just want, say, six of the cheap ones, which is about the same price, and then you could lay them out in a pattern or whatever. Anyway... I will have a link in the show notes for the Safety Puck 9-in-1, and I will also have links to the cheaper ones on Amazon. But remember, I haven't reviewed those. I can't recommend them because I don't know how well they'll perform. A place to visit. So I was in Halifax, Nova Scotia a few years ago, and I love it up there. I, it, the, the Maritimes are one of my happy places. And a friend of mine who is an avid beer drinker suggested that we go visit a place I had never heard of. That place is Alexander Keith's. Now, if you are from Canada, especially if you're from the eastern part of Canada, you know what Alexander Keith's is. But in the rest of the world, you may not. Alexander Keats is a beer, and it's a famous beer because it started being brewed in 1820, and they came up with a beer that could be shipped to India, which was difficult at the time because it was a very hot, long voyage, and beer tended to spoil. And they came up with an IPA 
that could do it. And of course, we know what IPA stands for. It's India Pale Ale. It was designed to go to India. Now the truth is, and they probably don't want me to tell you this because it, it was not on the tour that I'm about to recommend, their beer that they make now isn't actually an IPA. IPAs are heavily hopped, and the current version of Alexander Keith's is not heavily hopped. In fact, it is considered a golden lager, I believe. At any rate, I actually really like Alexander Keith's, and I don't like IPAs. Where am I going with this? Well, they have a factory tour that is unlike anything I have ever seen. It was one of the strangest experiences ever. Because my friend said, hey, let's go do a factory tour for this beer company. And I had a vision in mind. I thought we were going to go to a place that was like the opening scenes of Laverne and Shirley, if you're old enough to remember that show. Instead, we went in, bought our tickets, and were asked to sit around a large table in a boardroom. And a woman came in, dressed in 19th century garb, and explained to us that Mr. Alexander Keith who we knew had been dead for well over a hundred years, was a little bit busy and he was late and he wasn't going to come to the meeting. So we should carry on without him and follow her as she gives us a tour of his factory. And give us a tour she did, but the entire time she was in this 19th century character. And a lot of what we were seeing was modern and it created this absolutely bizarre situation where she wouldn't break character, we couldn't ask questions, and she couldn't tell us what any of the modern stuff was. All she could tell us about was the history of Alexander Keith, and she kept referring to him as being imminently on the scene. Oh, Mr. Keith will be right with us. Yes, he'll be right with us. Well, as we went through the tour, we saw more and more things that were left unexplained and finally ended up in the basement, which was done in the style of kind of a pub. And we thought, okay, this is great. This is where we're going to get our free samples of beer, which is a staple of most beer tours. But no, no, we had to play some 19th century bar games and win our beer. That's right. And these were very strange games indeed. And again, all the while, our tour guide is in character, informing us that Alexander Keith's arrival is imminent. I'll leave the end for you to discover if you ever happen to be in Halifax and want to spend, say, 90 minutes of rather surreal time in the Alexander Keith's factory tour. But after the tour's over, please do visit the actual bar in the building and raise a pint of Alexander Keith's. And when you do... Be sure to toast your friends with the word sociable, because that's what you do. Tales from the road. This is a little strange. I found myself in Dallas, Texas in my Land Rover, and I needed to park it for a few days. If you've never been to Dallas's airport, it is absolutely huge. I think it is the largest airport by land in the U.S., and they have tons and tons of parking. But at this time, which was oh, well over 10 years ago, they had parking in carports. It was a little bit more expensive, but I thought, I'll just park in the carport. That's fine. My car interior, I can't remember exactly why, but it was a bit damp. And I thought, well, I'm going to leave one of the sunroofs open. Just a crack. Well, maybe a little bit more than a crack. Uh, you know, a, a space, a, a hole big enough to put my fist through, but not big enough for someone to climb into the vehicle. I had a Land Rover Discovery Series 2, and they had two sunroofs. So I had the, the back one basically popped open. 
And I didn't think anything of it, and I flew off. I think it was to Las Vegas. I don't actually remember. Did whatever I was going to do, and I came back and got in the Land Rover, which had black leather upholstery, and turned around and found that Jackson Pollock had visited me in the form of a flying feathered thing. These carports are a great place for birds to roost, and the birds that roosted there saw the open skylight of my Land Rover and decided to kind of make themselves at home by perching on the back seat. And being birds and doing what birds did, they created a rather odiferous work of art and left it for me when I picked up my vehicle. It was a lot of shit. Fortunately, the leather seats cleaned off and I was able to get it going again, but it taught me the lesson that people aren't the only things you want to keep out of your vehicle when you're parked. Okay, resource recommendation. I've been using this for years. It's called TripIt.com. Basically, all it does is scan your email for travel-related things, and then when it finds them, say a car reservation or a hotel reservation or whatever, it puts them into this nicely formatted list that you can see on TripIt.com or in their app. This is not a paid endorsement for them, but I have been using it for many years, and there's a paid version and a free version. I actually like the free version. It works very simply and very automatically. You have to give it permission to read your email, which you may or may not want to do. But when it does, it will put everything together in trips and list them chronologically. So it's basically a list of what you have to do. First, you have to fly. Here's your seat. Here's your confirmation number. Here's what time you land. And then you have to go to the rental car place, which is at this address. And here's your confirmation number. And then you check into the hotel. It also has the local weather and, you know, a little bit of advertising because they have to pay for the free version. Now, if you don't want them to read your email, that's okay, too. You can take any one of these pieces of email and send it to plans at tripit.com, and it will recognize your email and put it into your account. It's actually very cool. Now, us van life folks, we don't have reservations all the time, but sometimes we do. And for things where you don't have a reservation, like say you're going to boondock somewhere, you can actually add that as a manual entry in your trip. So if you had a long trip that had a lot of confirmation numbers that you wanted to keep track of, TripIt might be a great way to do that. It's free to try it out. It's at TripIt.com. I'll have a link in the show notes if you can't figure out TripIt.com. And again... I am not being paid for this. It's just something I like. Well, thank you for listening to this episode 62. been very happy to spend this time with you. I hope you're staying safe in, in this winter storm. Music, as always, is by Simon Wag. Next week, we're going to cover all the different kinds of micro vans that are available in the U.S. That's what I'd planned on doing this week, but I figured we'd better do the winter stuff. Until next time, remember what Albert Camus said. In the depth of winter, I finally learned that within me, there lay an invincible summer. <laughs> <laughs>